Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Ali Moresco. Ali lives with Lyme disease and has become an advocate for diagnostics and improving patient outcomes for those living with Lyme. She's on the show today to talk to us all about it. Ali, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I'm having a total like fangirl moment talking to you. So it truly is an honor. Oh, well, the feeling's mutual. <laughs> Wow. Thank you so much. That's so sweet of you. I'm truly having the same moment myself. So I love it when things like that happen. It's really kismet that we end up on the show together. It is. Nothing um, happens by accident. So exactly. Well, that's something you've certainly learned through your health journey. So let's get straight into it. I'd love for you to talk to us about when and how you first realized that you had something going on with your health and how you've found ways to take control of your oh health boy. since then? Um, you know, it has been one giant learning process. And I'm sure as you know, firsthand, it, it never stops. So I feel like every day I'm working to like get control over it. Um, but you know, I think yep. like so many others living with Lyme disease and tick-borne illness, I um, had never really heard of it before. And I live in Chicago. I'm a city girl. I am not like a woodsy, like, yeah, let's go for a hike or like roll in the grass. Like it just, it's not who I am at all. And um, I was dating my now husband at the time and his family goes up to Northern Michigan every year. So I went with them about a year into us dating and um, came home and within a week came down with like flu-like symptoms and this weird like spotted leopard rash that I still have five years later to this day all over my body. And um, yeah, nobody, you know, nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. 
And um, it ultimately took two years of like testing, retesting, diagnosis after diagnosis that was incorrect um, until eventually a doctor looked at me and was like, I think you have Lyme disease. And I was like, oh, um, wow. and sure enough, you know, that's, that's what it was. And five years later, thank God, not good. I am still here. Um, like I said, you know, just trying to work yeah. through it every day. So it's a journey. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I mean, a lot of what you advocate for, um, certainly through your social media, um, as you've like grown into really this advocate for fellow Lymeys and other individuals living with chronic disease is, um, you know, about the fact that healing is an ongoing process. And I know that Lyme is known as the great imitator. Um, so can you talk to us about, you know, these flu-like symptoms, this rash that you came down with and what treatments you've pursued as well as you've gone into this healing journey? Um, so my first symptoms, it was like having a cold and I went to my doctor and they said, oh, you just have, you know, a summer cold. And I said, okay. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later I had full flu-like symptoms, went back to the doctor it's a summer flu, it'll pass. Okay. Um, and I think over the course of like the rest of that summer into the fall, I was at my GP at like a well-respected Chicago-based hospital um, every week, every two weeks. And every week or every two weeks, it was the same thing. It was, you have a stomach flu, you have food poisoning, you have a summer cold, you have the flu, you have a sinus infection, you have an ear, like it literally was never ending. Um, and then I just got worse and worse and worse and it morphed into like extreme joint pain, extreme nausea, um, couldn't get up and down the stairs by myself, couldn't get out of bed by myself. Um, just things that, you know, (laughs) you and I don't and no longer do, but like most people just take for granted every day. And then when you start to lose those capabilities, you're like, Oh my God, what is going on? Um, and eventually it's actually interesting because my mom through this whole thing was really the person that went through this with me. And she eventually asked my GP if I could get tested for Lyme disease because my mom grew up on the East coast. Um, it's actually where I was born. She was very aware. aware. And I will never forget this. My doctor looking at my mother and saying, anyone who ever tests her for Lyme disease is a charlatan. And I was like, what? (gasps) So, you know, my mom was like, okay, we'll listen to the doctor. And um, because who doesn't think that way until something doesn't go the way you're hoping it will. And then, you know, of course, two years later, I have a doctor look at me and be like, I think you have Lyme disease within this same hospital system, um, which was kind of wild. And in the midst of that, I feel like we could do like a whole other episode on this not that anyone would want to listen to me talk about this but about treatments because oh I um, won't (laughs) I've been lucky enough um to literally like do it all try it all um you know and it's like a blessing and a curse because on one hand I am one of those people where the initial like treatments really didn't help me so it I just kept getting sicker and like had to try all these other things but I also know that it's really not normal to like have access to so many vast and diverse treatments and to be able to try them all, which is what we're fighting to change. Um, But I have done, you know, Eastern, 
Western. I like, I did the antibiotics. I did IV antibiotics. I do, I still, I do ozone. I do IV therapy. I do peptide therapy actually with Dr. Casey Kelly. Um, and, you know, on top of that, I have multiple co-infections. I have um, dysautonomia, which means I eat a lot of salty food, which is good and bad, depending on what you're in the mood for. And I also have um, specific antibody deficiency. So I do IVIG every week, um, which is my main thing wow. right now. Is, yeah. I mean, this is a huge load from a treatment perspective, let alone from a diagnosis perspective. And as you're failing at various treatments in order to get to the next, as our our system dictates, right? That you fail first, you're getting sicker and sicker. Um, And I I wonder as well with the Lyme testing, because there's so much controversy about Lyme testing Mm -hmm. itself as well. Um, did your Lyme disease diagnosis show up in the traditional Western blot test, or did you have to like get the IgenX test and like get an LLMD or a Lyme literate medical doctor to look at your test results in order to get your diagnosis as well? Yeah. So, um, thankfully when my, when the doctor, like the GP tested me for Lyme originally, he knew enough to be dangerous, but not enough to like continue to treat me. So he tested me and I tested um, inconclusive on the like standardized CDC testing, but thank God he knew enough to say, eh, I know testing isn't accurate and now I'm going to send you to someone who can test you accurately. Um, and that's how I ended up at my first doctor in Wisconsin, who I still work with for certain therapies. Um but he's the one who then ultimately ordered all of like the hygienics testing and confirmed that I did have Lyme and I did have Babesia and Bartonella and like, you know, all the things, the works, the works that you don't want to have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you're also fortunate. I mean, it's frustrating that we have to mention mm-hmm. this, right? That it took you two years to get a diagnosis. And in the world of Lyme, that is mm-hmm. like unheard of. I mean, this is so quick that you got the diagnosis. So, and you're so plugged into the community at this point as well. Um, you know, I, I wonder about, was it, do you think because you had your mom as an advocate mm-hmm. there for you who stood up, even though she was turned down the yeah. first time, you know, that you had someone in the room with you who was pushing for you and you were eventually able to educate yourself as a patient? Do you think that's the reason that you got your diagnosis faster than your typical patient? um, And I talk about it all the time. And, um, you know, I've had, thankfully, through my like philanthropy work with Global Lyme Alliance, and now like all the legislative work I do, I've had the opportunity to meet thousands of patients across the country. And um, so many by their families and their friends are abandoned, and they have no one to go through this process with them. because you go see a doctor that is not educated on it. And they're like, oh no, that's not a thing. It's all in your head. You need an antidepressant. Um, and people just listen and thank God, you know, my mom, my family never questioned me. My husband never questioned me. They just knew because when you see somebody go from like such a thriving individual to like not being able to get out of bed, you just know that they wouldn't choose that. So having like my mom at every single appointment with me, um, taking notes, asking questions, you know, when I really wasn't as capable, I, I do, I fully credit that with like still being alive today. 
Yeah. And what about, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, I'd love to know also how this has impacted your relationship with your now husband. Obviously you've gotten engaged and gotten married in the midst of dealing with this diagnosis and going through treatment. So has the diagnosis in a sense deepened your relationship or created its own challenges to your relationship? Yeah, I would say absolutely in both ways. And I think that's only natural. Um, You know, my husband knew me for a while, you know, before I got sick. So like, once again, knew me as this like very energetic, very ambitious, um, very like social person. And then ultimately, um, as my health started to fail, you know, he, he watched me slowly decline. Um, so he knew me before and knew me after. Um, and thank God, I would say it made our relationship 20 times stronger. Uh, it brought us closer together. And he, along with like my parents is like my greatest supporter and greatest support system. And, um, really like stepped up to the plate in a way that I think most people wouldn't. Um, And it does mean, you know, like I'm 27, he's in his early thirties. And normally when there's not like a pandemic, you'd be at that age, you know, going out for drinks and dinners at 8 PM at night and traveling and like doing all of these fun things. And, um, you know, most of the time I'm just unable to do those. So we've had to find, you know, other ways to spend quality time together. Um, And yeah, we just, we make it work. And um, I think communication is a huge thing. Like I, he doesn't know what I need or how I'm feeling if I don't communicate it to him because like so many with invisible illnesses often, you know, we look fine. Um, And now, now he's pretty good at telling and being like, you're not doing so hot today, are you? And I'm like, no, but sometimes I do just get up and I'm like, just let you know, I'm just going to stay in bed today because I feel horrible. And he, you know, he gets it and he's like, okay, what can I do to support you? Um, but yeah, communication is a big one, especially, um, if you're somebody that previously was like extremely independent. So. Absolutely. Well, and I wonder as well, because you've talked about numerous treatments, but one thing that hasn't come up is mental health support. And a huge part of this journey, right. Is the grieving process. Grieving one's former self, if you were previously able-bodied, even going through that process with your loved ones. So would you say that, um, I mean, was that offered to you at any point? Have you leaned into mental health support? Has that been a part of the treatment regimen as as well? Yes. I, it took me longer than it should have. Um, The first two or three years, you know, I really just leaned on my family and my husband and, um, I don't think I realized how emotionally stuck and drained I was in grieving my old self. Um, And then very sadly and very tragically, um, my, so every year I host a large gala in Chicago to raise money for research for Global Lyme Alliance. And I founded this gala um, with a co-chair and a very close friend, Casey Passon. And, um, you know, we did all of our philanthropy work together and, and community building and all of these things. And um, she, August will be three years. Um, she also had Lyme disease and she passed away right like four days after our second annual gala. And it was, it was, oh, wow. it was then that I finally sought um, like professional help 
for my mental health. Um, so it absolutely like, yeah, to all the people listening, don't let it take something like that for you to go see someone. Like it's a very normal, healthy thing that even if you're an individual with like no health problems, no issues, I'm like, everyone should have mental health support if they can and have access to it. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's, it's, it's like going to the doctor, like the regular doctor got to do it. Um, so now I still, I did a lot of really intensive therapy, um, to work through that and my own health issues ultimately that I've been suppressing. And to this day, I see a psychologist once a week. Um, I have a very, like, I don't want to call it rigorous because it's, you know, it's like spirituality and meditation, but every single day I set aside time just to like tune out and tune into myself. And, um, I I work with an energy healer. So I, I'm like, I do it all. I'm a fan of it all. (laughs) Yeah. You're really pulling from the toolbox and, and picking the things that work for you, but also exposing yourself to all different kinds of healing modalities, which is really important. It's sort of, it's an experiment as much for you as it is for anyone else dealing with a chronic disease in trying to find what works for you. Yeah. Yeah. So what does a typical day look like for you? Okay. Um, A typical day for me is it's a lot different than it was a few years ago um, because thankfully, you know, I am working again and um, that is lovely. So every day looks different. Um, And I don't try to adhere to like, any certain schedule, because as you know, firsthand, I can wake up one day and feel great. I can wake up another day and and not be able to get out of bed. And it is what it is. I just give my body what it needs. Um, so I am an insomniac, like literally not even as a joke. So I go to bed very late and I tend to wake up between like eight 30 and like nine 30. So I give myself that time in the morning. I have coffee. I like center myself for the day. Um, I meditate and then I start digging into like my work schedule. Um, and then I try every afternoon to give myself a break. So I don't either burn out or exhaust myself because for me, there's a very, as I'm sure there is for most people, there's a very fine line between being tired and being, becoming like chronically fatigued and exhausted. And sometimes I don't know until after I cross that line. Um, so I try to give myself some time in the afternoon to rest, then I'll do some more work and I hook up to an IV cause I have a pick line. I'm very lucky. I can just do some of my treatments at home to keep myself in check. Um, so I work and I do an IV and then, um, by like the early evening, I, I finish up working and, um, sometimes I'll do another IV and <laughs> I will like do some meditation, pull some cards, watch a TV show, and then, um, try to go to bed. But I mean, other days, like on every Wednesday I have IVIG and it's, it's an all day treatment. Right. So like every Wednesday I go to, um, you know, infusion center and sit all day for six or eight hours, you know, hooked up with five tiny needles in my leg. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it just depends on what, what day I I catch you that we're, (laughs) that we're talking about what it looks like. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, I'm curious as well, because you mentioned that you have now been able to start working again. And obviously this is something that you're working around your treatment schedule. Yeah. What do you think about this? You know, we live in this country where the cultural norm is work-life mm-hmm. balance. We hear that term all the time, right? Work comes first, yeah. life comes second. Have you had to work on changing your perception of what that looks like for you in order to get well within this culture as well? Oh yeah. Um, I, prior to getting sick, I founded my own PR firm and I worked like a dog. I lived to work and I loved what I did. Um, but like, no wonder I got sick the way that I did because it was not healthy. And keep in mind, I was also working with mostly in, um, like entertainment PR. So with like reality TV stars, like just energy sucking, um, souls. And so it was very draining in a lot of ways. And, um, when I got sick, I like literally came to terms with, I remember saying to my husband, like my parents, whatever, like I might not ever work again. And you know what, that's fine. If I just raise money for the rest of my life for medical research, fine. So be it. It's what I meant to do if I'm helping others. Um, and then I literally had no interest in going back to work, was very, very happy just volunteering and fundraising and working on political advocacy and all those things. Um, And I had somebody reach out to me that I had met through the Lyme community and they ended up becoming my first client back again. And it was all Lyme centered, patient focused, um, educational and I ended up, I started and I was like, okay, I'll try it for a couple of months, but I'm not sure where this is going to go because I'm not very stable health-wise. And um, it took me setting like really firm boundaries and being really honest with myself and with others about, you know, what I could and couldn't do and um, also what I enjoyed and what I didn't enjoy. Um And now I work with a couple of different clients that are all health, wellness, Lyme, patient empowerment focused. And I think those are the only people, you know, that I'll ever work with moving forward. But it's great because um, it's something that like I genuinely love and I never want to do anything where I don't feel like I'm making the world a better place. So it kind of just like crosses over into also things that I enjoy and, um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of like deprogramming mm-hmm. what we were taught. Like, not that like, yeah. this was ever instilled in me, but that you had to work around the clock, like a dog to be successful. And like, um, that you had to be available all hours of the day and night. I mean, it just isn't true. There's way more to life than that. And um, it's separating out like, the career and work piece of ourselves from our identity, because we're so much more than that. So yeah. I don't know if that even answered your question. But. I mean, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. It does. I mean, really what you're telling us is that getting sick made you shift your priorities oh, and yeah. that's been reflected in the work you're doing yeah. and which we're going to get more into in a little bit. I'm also wondering, cause you, you mentioned, um, you know, this doctor early on who said that anyone who tested you for Lyme was a charlatan and then, you know, you're a, a woman walking into the medical system and we know that often we are told we're hysterical yes. and it's all in our heads. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, if you can talk to us about any um, instances in which you've been confronted and forced to justify the existence of your diagnosis of your illness yeah. to people who just couldn't get their heads around it because they couldn't see it in front of them. 
What has that been like for you? You know, um, I don't know in relation to my career, if I've ever had that experience, like now, thankfully. Um, but I mean, like countless times I've been questioned about how severe it actually is, or like, I've been asked like, Oh, are you better yet? Which I think is something a lot of people, like even outside of the Lyme community get. And I'm like, no, it's a chronic illness. It will never go away. Yeah. People don't get the chronic part, <laughs> Unless do they? there's a miracle. <laughs> um, from please higher power is a miracle. Um, but yeah, yeah, I feel like I've had to justify and educate to this day that say like either it doesn't exist or it's extreme. It's not as bad as, you know, we say it. Is. So about two years ago, um, and Jenny, I'm sorry if you're listening to this and I don't say your last name, right? Jenny Budicchio, who's a wonderful like Lyme centered journalist, wrote an article about patient advocacy and doctors and all these things. Um, and it happened to be the same week that the New York Times wrote this article basically about how Lyme wasn't real and it doesn't live in the body the past six weeks. And this, this incredibly biased, it gives me goosebumps still thinking about it from my head to my toes um, article. And so then a couple of days later, Jenny puts out this article this other article that was beautifully and wonderfully written and um, it went viral on Twitter. And I ended up getting like tons of the stuff. Like I actually had to, I deleted, I didn't delete my account, but I deleted the Twitter app off my phone. This is why I've been off Twitter now for like two years because it went viral and people started like coming after me saying that I was a cult leader and Lyme isn't real. And like you're preying on innocent people, like all these things. And I was like, oh my God, I'm living with this. It is real. Like, how can you be so negligent to that just because you haven't personally experienced this? And I was like, trust me, if I was a cult leader, maybe I'd be having a lot more fun. And like Creed said in the office, I'd be making a lot more money. Um, So (laughs) it was just kind of one of those things, like one of those realizations, like you were asking about like people not believing it or having to like explain yourself where it just kind of like blew the lid off of my um, realization that people just have no concept of Lyme, let alone chronic disease. And they have to live that way. Like we do. Mm. Yeah. It's really frustrating. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. Cause that's one of those things too, that, and, and we know that social media has been a perpetrator in the widespread yeah. Uh, proliferation of misinformation, right? But of course, the backlash to that is that there are people who are presenting actual information and their own experiences, Mm -hmm. who then aren't taken seriously. And it has given rise to trolling and, you know, all that kind of thing. So I don't blame you for deleting the app off your phone, certainly, um, when it came to Twitter. But it's a, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Isn't it? Because, you know, as, as a healthcare advocate, you also rely on these forms of communication in order to get the message out there and to mobilize people. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, but it's why I'm like, so thankful for people like you that like out of the goodness of your heart and because you see a hole and a need work so tirelessly to produce podcasts and media and. Yeah. I mean, that's the hope, right? That like we can create new media that that helps shift narratives because it is really important. I mean, that's how new voices get out there. I know that, um, you know, we talked a bit about not being believed, right? You're a, a 
presenting as a white woman walking into, you know, a, a heteronormative white woman walking into yeah. the healthcare system. And, and you mentioned before, and I'd love to dig into this idea of privilege yeah. and prejudice as it exists in your experience. Do you think that your circumstances might be different if you presented differently, if you were a woman of color, if you were yeah. male walking in and, and asking for Lyme testing? How, how has your identity influenced your experience? Oh, I think we absolutely, while there are numerous challenges and struggles and like the fight never ends when you're living with a tick-borne disease, I think it's 10 times worse for a woman of color or a, even a man of color um, or someone with a language barrier. Um, like you said, women are already, <laughs> doctors already think we're hysterical. You know, if you come in excruciating pain, and, um, you know, I'm, that's why I'm like very thankful now that there's entire accounts dedicated to and support groups dedicated to specifically supporting people of color living with tick biz. I am well aware that I am incredibly privileged in countless ways. I'm very, very lucky. Um, and I can try my best to educate myself and, um, help to lift the voices of those living in marginalized communities. Um, But I personally will never know firsthand that experience, which is why I really try my best. Like my mom always growing up said, say little, do much. And I'm not going to preach on their experience without having lived it. I just think that's wrong, but I'm, can share readily available resources. I can reach out to all the organizations to say, hey, why aren't we showing what a bullseye rash looks like on every single skin tone? And I'm not just talking about, you know, my Caucasian skin or um, the skin of a person of color, like every color of the rainbow. Why, why don't we have that on here? Because it's more than just, in, you know, it, it appears very differently, which is not something that I learned until I started following, um, I think her Instagram handle is Negrocon Lime. And I had this kind of like moment, like there's so much that's not out there that because there's so many people doing like very primitive action on social media. And like, if you're posting a quote card or something, it's like, you know what I mean? That's very, um, very calculated on like your Instagram story. It doesn't do anything unless you're doing the work behind the scenes. Like, I don't care. I don't give a shit what you're posting. Like you've got to actually do the work. Yeah. Well said. Absolutely. Well said. Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko, a graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law. She's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable, and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. Would you say that racial and gender inequality in the healthcare system is a public health crisis of its own, aside from the public health crisis that is the Lyme disease epidemic? Would you say that 
that these are tantamount to their own public Absolutely health crisis? Would. So I was, I'm a publicist by trade, right? And piece around women in medicine and women in companies. And um, I there tell me that, you know, we are just Sorry to cut you off. I'm, oh, I'm okay. losing you. Can you, would you mind going back? Cause you, you mentioned what I caught was, you know, I'm a publicist by trade and then it's sort of cut off. So um, I want to make sure we're lined up again and we get that part of the story. <laughs> um, so I'm a publicist by trade, which I think some people know, some people don't, I don't share like a ton about my career very publicly. Um, but I was, pitching a story in December about women in medicine, women in healthcare, women blazing their own trail, because at one point or another, they were not believed by a male doctor, or they were told that it wasn't as bad as it was. And now, you know, they're incredibly sick or whole host of complexities. Um, and I was told by this writer that that was not actually something, and keep in mind, this is like a premier publication that ultimately we did get published in, but not for what I was originally pitching. Um, I was told by this writer that they cannot print anything saying there are no studies or data to like actually back it up, which to me was just completely mind-blowing because as a woman, I have experienced it firsthand, a chronologist telling me that I was just like a, a hormonal um, woman in my early 20s that needed an antidepressant. Like I personally have experienced it and I can only imagine how much worse it is for um, especially women of color um, that walk into these offices and are told that plus something 10 times worse or just don't even have access to the care that they direly need. Um, but that like conversation, I just always go back to because it's something that I think, and I'm sure you've experienced it as well as a woman living with, you know, chronic diseases and disabilities and people wanting to like downplay how bad it actually is because you're quote unquote, a hysterical woman um, needs to change. Yeah. I love that you bring up the, it does need to change. I love that you bring up this studies mm -hmm. issue because, you know, if you look at studies, it's also quite clear, and we've talked about this, you know, innumerable times on the show, it's also very clear that all these studies are yeah. entirely biased. So unless we start taking some of these, um, these anecdotal stories seriously, especially mm -hmm. when they recur over and over and over again, we're doing ourselves a disservice and science is already biased against women and people of color anyway. <laughs> so, and I will say mm -hmm. that as a journalist without the studies, because every story I hear on the show yeah. confirms yes. that narrative, doesn't it? You know, and if that doesn't change, then, and here, here I am almost 200 interviews yeah. later. It's like, give me a break. We know yeah. what the story is at this point. We need point. to take all of your episodes and do like a case study. <laughs> I'm down if you are. Sign me up. <laughs> I, I, yeah, exactly. So I, I would love to talk about your advocacy work now, because this has really become what you yeah. do full time. Um, it's been part of that identity shift for you since diagnosis. So can you talk to us about how you went from someone who required yeah. an advocate yeah. in your mom and your, and your husband to someone who began to be able to reach out to others and 
start to change the narratives around Lyme disease? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I won't, I won't lie to you and I won't lie to listeners. I still need a lot of help day to day. Um, and there's nothing wrong with needing help. I still need, you know, my husband and my mom to help advocate for me some days. And um, I'm very thankful for them. But for me, it all kind of changed once I did get my diagnosis and I went to my LLMD for the first time and the insurance denial started coming in. And, um, you know, thankfully I have access to care, but I realized that there's so many people, whether it's in the Lyme community or not, that if they can't pay for their medical care, they're just ultimately dying at some point um, because they don't have the access. And I think that's a crime. I think it's despicable. You know, we're living in 2021 and people are dying because they can't get access to the care they need. And I walked out, you know, of my first LLMD appointment and was like, oh my God, this has to change. Like, this is unacceptable. Um, so I started researching advocacy organizations and ultimately, you know, my, my husband and I, this goes to show you like how nerdy we are, sat and read all of the annual reports for the organization's funding research. And we loved what we saw in Global Lyme Alliances like last, and this now was four years ago, like their last handful of annual reports. And I reached out to like their info email and said, hey, let me help you. <laughs> and um, I, months went by, didn't hear anything back. And then finally one day somebody emailed me back and said, oh, we had just started talking to this other Lyme patient who turned out to be Casey. Um, you know, will you connect with her? And her and I sat um, for like four hours one day and she was the first person I ever met with Lyme. And she really educated me on the community and what was going on in the community or like the lack thereof what was going on. Um, and I just knew from then that like somebody had to do something about it. And, you know, I'm only one person. I can't change it all, but I can certainly try to rally the troops. <laughs> Well, you're doing just that. Talk to us about the initiative that you've started where you've created a platform in which individuals can really join collective effort to contact legislators and you're getting change going. Yeah. You're making it happen. Yeah, we, we are certainly trying our best. Um, so about two years ago, um, after I had really gotten into like the philanthropy community around Lyme disease and was hosting all these events, meeting all these patients, thankfully raising a lot of money for research. It, I just learned, um, and it hit me one day that really we're not going to see change on like a mass scale until federal laws change and federal research is funded. And I really think the key to this fight against tick-borne disease and healthcare on, on a larger level for everyone. It's these public private partnerships and we need both. Um, and so I started getting involved um, with trying to get the K Hagen Tick Act at first passed and then thankfully it was passed and then funded. So I was putting out all these calls to action on Instagram and I was writing these letter templates and then sending them out to everyone. And then it got to the point where I was sending 
marketing it every time to all 600 people. And I was like, oh my gosh, I like, there has to be a better way. <laughs> like I've got to streamline this. Um, and my husband DJ was getting his MBA at University of Chicago booth. And in one of his classes came up with this concept for like automating the advocacy process. Um, so we spent quite a bit of time researching like the holes in the system and let's say you're a constituent living in a district what's the best way for you to use your voice you know to advocate for your needs to your local politicians and representatives and it turns out that it's letters letters are the only form of communication that have to be opened and documented and counted um so you know we got our stuff together and we built a website and, you know, programs and hired a public policy writer and a printer. And we're just trying to make it easy for people um, to have their voices heard. So it's just through my own need. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think it's incredible because you realize the need to streamline for yourself, but what you're doing is that you're handing the power over to individuals to write to 600 people at a time. Yeah. So what we get is this exponential growth in the effort to create change. And we've seen this also happen in um, the BLM movement, right? A lot of people were posting mm-hmm. sort of similar things where you could sign a petition and, and contact your representatives. So what you've been able to do is build yeah. out a system that is, I mean, literally empowering people at the press of a button to reach countless legislators, not too shabby. You know, thank you. Uh, we're trying. This is what I'm, but they say there's no, there is no try. There's only do. Yeah. And I, I think you're like a, a, a living example of someone who was like, well, maybe if we thought creatively about it and like lined it up and, and hit a home run. Yeah. Hey, anything to make um, patients' lives easier. You know, one of the things I was hearing from a lot of people was that it just is too difficult for their brain. And I understand this firsthand to constantly be writing these letters and sending them and mailing them and updating them to like the current legislative needs. And um, it's exhausting. Like using your brain someday just to like get a glass of water is exhausting, let alone read legislation and then write to advocate, you know, for it or against it or whatever it is. So um, yeah, that's why we formed Advocacy Express so that people literally like this. Is, it's not for a profit. It's not, which really bothered me. I got questioned for that a lot when it first, when I first launched it and I've like never made a dollar off of like the Lyme community. Um, but literally for the cost like of stamps, which is what, you know, it costs us then exponentially, which is fine. Um, for the cost of stamps, like you can send your representative, your local politicians, either one letter a week, one letter a month, or if you're advocating for something like major, you can do something called a letter blitz and send them a hundred letters at one time. And you just know that because we have experts writing them at like the deepest level, it's advocating things specific right now to tick-borne disease that we need now, like legislation and proper diagnostics. We need the insurance codes to change. We need, you know, funding for the K. Hagen Tick Act, like all of these things. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough. I went to DC last year, literally weeks before the pandemic and the shutdown happened. And that for me was my first 
foray into like big politics and how it actually works um, and how things actually get done. And I went to this lobbying day put on by the Center for Lyme Action and they educated us phenomenally, but to put on one lobbying day for an organization, the minimum cost is $75,000. So like your average person, like you or I, can't just go and do, you know, organize this and put on a lobbying day. Um, there shouldn't be gatekeeping to politicians. There shouldn't be gatekeeping to having voice heard or having like a, an elected official be able to say, oh, well, you didn't leave your zip code in your phone call, so it wasn't counted. Or, oh, we just didn't have the manpower to open your form or your email, so it wasn't counted. So we're like, okay, how can we make this so it's guaranteed that anyone and everyone can have their voice heard on an issue? Um, so I, so far it's working. Knock, knock wood. I'm Italian. I've got to do all the superstitious things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You better knock that wood. So, I mean, you mentioned in discussing sort of, it sounds like the direction that Advocacy Express is going to go in, right? That this is also about improving our healthcare system, um, not just for Lyme patients. I mean, I know that you have your eyes on, on a bigger prize here in terms of reach yeah. and the people that you'll be able to serve. Um, but from your experience and the experiences of individuals who you talk to in the chronic disease community, Talk to us about in what ways you think the healthcare system is working here in the U.S. Oh and in what ways it's falling short. <laughs> like, what are the pluses and minuses of this of this uh, this big old system yeah. that we have going on here? That and I say big old system because it is sort of a dinosaur at this point, it you is. know, ready to be extinct. An antiquated but, system. You know, what's working? What's not working? Yeah. So I'm going to boil this down to a few different things or we'd literally be here till midnight and you'd be asking me to stop talking. Um, I don't think that's possible, but <laughs> I want to hear it anyway. I think to me, the main problem is that doctors, or at least in my personal experience and what I've heard from a lot of other patients, and this is even outside of Lyme, just people with chronic diseases, rare diseases, um, is that traditional Western MDs, like in your standard doctor's office or hospital system, they try to fit you in a neat, tidy little box. And if your symptoms fall outside of that, that's when you become hysterical or a liar, or um, they tell you it's psychosomatic, or it's, it's an anxiety issue or a mental health condition. And um, doctors I just think it comes down to like the educational system for medical professionals in medical school. You're not, you're taught about all the basic diseases that pharmaceutical companies can treat, but you're not taught enough about chronic diseases and how to help people with chronic diseases or rare diseases. Um, and you know, I understand that not every doctor can be educated on every single condition, but I do believe that every doctor should be educated enough to know, hey, if this isn't something that I've heard of, or if this isn't something I've experienced, I know what specialist to send you to. Um, so that ultimately you just keep getting sicker and sicker until you can get the help you need. Um, I think the other big part of it for me was is in relation mostly to insurance companies. You shouldn't have to keep getting sicker to get approved. 
improved for the type of care that you need preventatively. There's not enough done in preventative medicine. And one example for me is uh, we went through a year of getting denied for Hyzentra, which is the IVIG drug that I desperately needed to the point where I basically became bedridden. And it wasn't until then because my levels were so low. So I could be done by now and I could be off of their, you know, their um, expenses over at my insurance company. But instead now I'm probably gonna have to do this treatment for the rest of my life because they denied it for a year. Um, I hear that from patients all the time that they, if it's a tick-borne disease or, or Lyme disease, insurance companies, well, they just don't have to credit. I mean, that's just a fact. Um, but even with all these other issues, you know, last week I was having a conversation with a young woman that has gastroparesis and her insurance company keeps denying her direly treatment literally because she is not sick enough. So I just, I've said it before, I think it's a crime. It has to change. And um, unfortunately, change takes a lot of slow and steady effort. Um, so I'm trying to put in that slow and steady effort now to hopefully see those changes for future generations. I think that's, you nailed it. I mean, especially this concept that because we have a sick care system and there are private interests involved, you know, uh, these pharmaceutical companies aren't going to profit when someone's using a medication short term. Mm -hmm. And that is what is killing people. Um, so I'm really glad that you've called yep. that out so specifically. Mm -hmm. I, I also wonder, um, I mean, I'd love to sort of pivot into on that heavy note, um, what you have to offer the community that's tuning into this episode, I'd love for you to share some tips for someone who's living through a chronic disease, specifically Lyme, you know, what yeah. top three tips would you offer for someone who is living with this diagnosis, is living with invisible chronic illness and is feeling all at sea? Yeah, um, I think the first one, and it sounds like very simple, but in reality, it can feel more complex than I guess it sounds. It's just knowing to give yourself grace every day and not beat yourself up um, over whether you can or can't do something. You've just got to give yourself a lot of grace and the same way that like if your best friend came to you or your brother or sister or whoever came to you and said, this is what I'm struggling with or I'm so frustrated because I can't do X, Y, or Z, you have to to be just as kind to yourself internally as you would outwardly to someone else. Um, I think the second thing, and this is more of, I guess, a thought than a tip, is to try to always remember that your illness is not all of who you are. It's simply a sin feel when you're in the thick of it and you feel like you're dying, as even I do some days five years later, um, I still try to remember all of the amazing people I have in my life or, you know, I have three insane standard poodles that bark all the time, but like I joke around and I'm like, you guys are the love of my life. Um, my poor husband. Um, <laughs> but like, there's, there's so many other things, you know, to enjoy or get like these small slivers of joy from. So even when it's really tough, just remembering there is a lighter up, not being afraid to ask for help. There's nothing wrong with it. And we are taught just to press our emotion, press our needs for 
sometimes you just got to ask for help and there's nothing wrong with it. I used to ask my husband to help me go to the bathroom, you know, if that's I marriage for you. Do it. Um, yes, anyone can do it. And I'm sure mm-hmm. there's like 50 million more things I can think of, but those are the main things that I wish yeah. someone had told me. So yeah. a lot of grace there, I think grace and compassion. So I'm wondering as well, I mean, you mentioned your, your three standard poodles and married life, and I'm wondering what the top three things are in your life that give you unbridled joy, that you're unwilling to compromise. Obviously, oh you've had to adjust your lifestyle around your diagnosis, yeah. you know, but what are yeah. your top three, like comfort activities or, or places that you turn when you need to light yourself up? Where does Allie go? Yeah. Um, I feel very lucky that I have a lot of things that really light me up and make me so happy. And um, I'm not going to put them in any certain order because I'm like, I don't want to rank them. Um, But like I said, I have three dogs. I love my dogs. Um, One of them actually named Scout is my service dog who alerts me with like my dysautonomia before I'm going to either like get dizzy or pass out and I literally joke that this dog is the love of my life because I'm like, who else can like come up and smell my breath and tell me what's going to happen to me? No one. Um, so I love my animals. They like get me out of bed in the morning and my, my family and my close friends, you know, that have rallied around me and the patient community. Um, and honestly, sometimes it's also the thought of like our community and driving change that gets me out of bed, like on my worst days or keeps me going. Um, because this is an issue that is greater than just me. I always like to tell people, I'm like, this isn't about me. This is about us. This is for us. Um, and then I also take a lot of joy in just like really simple things. Like I said, I love meditation. I love anything creative. Um, I love doing watercolor. I also try to do a lot of things um, for my brain, like neurologically to keep it active and like exercise it. And actually, I think this was really funny. Legos are a great way to do that. Um, I love that. It's a return to childhood imagination. Yes, it is. So I do a lot of like little Legos and it sounds so silly, but it just makes me like so happy. And, you know, outside of that, like I'm Italian, I love to eat. I love to cook. I love to travel. Like yeah. Um, just experience life, I guess. I just, you know, I'm sure, you know, firsthand after you get diagnosed with a chronic disease or, um, anything like one good day, like, how do I, how do I make it count? How- well, I think it really is about that recalibration, isn't it? It's about that energy shift where you're able to find joy in the little things. I mean, you and I mentioned before we even started, the interview about just like having a mocha instead of a coffee some mornings is like, what a delight, (laughs) you know, and sort of, especially, I mean, I think a lot of people are starting to connect to that in lockdown because the joys have become simpler. Yeah. So relate to that narrative for sure now. Yes, absolutely. And it's like you said earlier, we, the people that have, you know, the capability to work most of the time, more often than not, they live to work. And I think, I hope at the very least with the pandemic, people take out of it that like, there's so much more to life. And even if it's as simple as sitting and like having a mocha every morning, like how great is that? That's beautiful. So. And as you're saying that I've got the birds chirping outside my window and I'm going, Oh, 
What the I love, love it. The, tw- the, the tweets are, are, are going crazy. So <laughs> I, I wonder, um, you know, the birds are all in agreement with you. Um, what your ask is for listeners today, what can they do to support you and the Lyme community in your continuing advocacy effort? Oh gosh, there's so many things. Um, so I would say the first thing, um, is not necessarily related to me, but just take care of yourself and give your body what it needs today and show yourself love and self-care in any form that you need it. Um, because sometimes it's hard just to get through the day and literally clicking a few buttons feels like too much. So if that's all you can do, that's fine. Um, if you have some energy and you feel like getting involved or, um, showing some support or doing something, I would say my biggest thing right now is, um, advocating for legislation and patient rights. So, we have an Instagram, Advocacy Express. You can go, you know, check out what, what we're doing and what we're all about there. You can go to the advocacyexpress.com and start literally this week sending all of your political representatives letters to advocate. Um, we also have a page on the website where if you suffer from a different chronic disease or you're advocating for lupus research or whatever it looks like, Um, because we have the infrastructure in place, I want this to be a tool for everyone and anyone. So you can send us a cause that you're working on and we will have our experts work with you, um, to craft a letter that you can then send to your representatives and get your community to sign up, um, at no cost other than, you know, covering stamps. So yeah, just my biggest ask is for people, um, if they have the energy and are able is to just step up and and use their voice to drive change. Um, I think that's the biggest thing in any capacity. Yeah. Well, you're walking the walk and talking the talk. So what is next for you in your advocacy journey, as well as your wellness journey? Because these are both ongoing stories in your life. What's next? You know, I'm almost hesitant to answer that question because if you had asked me that at this time last year, I would have never said that I'd be trapped at home living in an unprecedented pandemic. So yeah. who knows what's next? Um, I just hope that, you know, I'm still progressing forward in my health journey, upward trending as I fully believe, um, you know, IVIG will take me. So I'll still be doing that at least for the next year to year and a half. Um And as far as advocacy goes, I am meeting at the end of this month with all of the Midwest, like senators and representatives virtually to continue advocacy and continue advocating for patient rights on a lot of different levels. Um, And these meetings that took place all of the country last year, even outside of me are ultimately what got the Kay Hagan Tick Act passed and funded. Um, So I'm very, very hopeful. on those efforts. Um, I'm also with a fellow Lyme Megan Bradshaw. We are planning another fundraiser for Global Lyme Alliance in April, which I'm very excited about. So I feel like I always kind of have like a couple of things going on, but the best place to find those things is on my Instagram because it's just kind of like constantly ongoing, like you said. Yeah. And you've got your own podcast too. Yes. I, um, for fun, my very close friend who also is a spiritual medium and I host a podcast called slightly spiritual where we, you know, I'm like very, 
very beginner in that world. And, you know, she's like very, very high level. Um, and it, you know, it's so hard when you're like dipping your toe into spirituality, like you go on to goop and they're like, you need this thousand dollar crystal and this powder <laughs> and you need to see the shaman. And I'm like, what are you talking? Like what planet are you on? Um, pretty much. So it's so nice because I get to explore like all these different like healing and spiritual modalities with my very good friend who like understands it way, way more than I do. Um, so I feel like just very lucky that I get to have all those conversations all the time. I think it's so uh, yeah. fun. Yeah. And um, remind everyone where they can find you on social media and get connected with the work that you're doing. Yeah. The best place to find me is at Ally Team Resco on Instagram. Um, I always respond to messages, comments, whatever it is. Um, so if you're looking for any chronic disease or tick-borne illness resources, please, please, please reach out to me because I am always here um, to listen or, or provide resources. Ali, is there anything else you'd like to share with everyone before I set you free? Um, nothing groundbreaking. I would just, you know, generally say like, don't lose hope. Um, and eventually like something will click, you know, it took me five years to find a VAG and I almost feel like people hate when I tell them that, because a lot of the times I hear back, like, well, I don't have five years to waste like you. And I'm like, I didn't have five years to waste like me. Gosh. <laughs> um, so you know, it might take some time, but eventually you'll find a doctor, a treatment, like things that work and you've just got to keep going and it will yeah. happen. Hang in there. Yeah. Hang in there. Exactly. Yeah. Allie, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. I'm so glad we finally connected and um, thank you for being such a, a gracious and elegant voice for this community and um, for creating work that empowers others. This is really the, it's the sauce. So thank you so much for all you do for the Lyme community and beyond. And we can't wait to continue to see how your journey develops. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Like I said, this is a total honor and I'm like blushing now. Um, and it gives me so much more motivation going forward. So thank you. I'm so thrilled. Oh, thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.